Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. Oh, this book wanted me to feel at home. My guest this episode is Carl Engelaird. Carl is an editorial assistant at Tor.com, where he acquires and edits short fiction in between dives into the slush pile. After years in the slush trenches, it's fair to say he's seen some things, things that you wouldn't believe. Carl has served as Tor.com's resident chair of Stormlight Studies and former Bucket-in-Chief. Relevant to people who've been following the Cabbages and Kings Twitter account, Carl edited Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, for which I'm very grateful. Thank you for coming on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, I'd like to state for the record that anything I say here is just as Carl Engelaird. I can't speak for all of Tor.com because I'm not enough people to do that. Nor would we want you to, but thank you for coming on. I'd like to start by asking people just how they got into science fiction and fantasy. Well, I, I probably got into science fiction fantasy somewhat before I had Cogent Memory Foundation. My family has some old school nerds in it, and I think I have relatives who had a bilingual English and Quenya wedding service, which I wasn't at, but... I'm impressed. <laughs> I am too. Probably my earliest fantasy reading memory is huddling between my parents on my bed in fear as my dad read The Flight to Moria in The Fellowship of the Ring. And I got started on modern epic fantasy when I picked up The Eye of the World when I was eight, I think. Yeah, I was maybe a couple years older and it was a Christmas present. Mm -hmm. For me, I think the scene where they're retelling The Battle of Manetherin and I got chills, kind of like I got the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. And that, looking back, is sort of, I think, where I commit to that series. That's a great segment. It's so deep in memory. And it's such a strange series to remember, because despite starting when I was eight, it was the first large-scale epic I finished. Mm -hmm. Because I, in the meantime, got onto a bunch of series I either didn't want to finish or couldn't finish, because they weren't done. You were not eight when you finished it, though. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I don't. No, if I would have liked it if I started reading when I was 23, when I finished it, but uh -huh. it's super important to me, and it occupies a place in my brain that nothing can replace. Mm -hmm. You wanted to talk about diversity in the genre and queer romances, and as someone who has not thought very seriously about either my sexuality or sexuality as portrayed in the genre beyond reading about Karaman and Tika flirting at an impressionable age, which I think is not a very thoughtful or useful introduction to sexuality. I remember Karaman. I can't remember what gender Tika is, actually. From Dragonlance. She's the red-headed barmaid that he kind of falls uh. for, and she needs help putting on armor, and it is extremely juvenile and definitely not the sort of thing that a kid in junior high figuring out about girls should be reading and taking sort of unconscious notes from, but I kind of did, and that explains a lot. I remember having to grow past my sexuality being informed by the Allminster books. Uh-huh. He's not a good role model for healthy sexual relationships, but I mean, most D&D characters aren't. Which is to say that I have not thought very much about sexuality in what I'm reading until fairly recently. So why don't you talk a little bit about what's important to you, what you're looking for when you're reading The Slush, so slush is a really grueling process. For anyone who hasn't done slush or haven't even heard the phrase, slush is reading submissions from people you haven't 
specifically ask to write a book for you. So an agent will have a slush pile. Some of the publishing houses have slush piles. And they're just huge, huge stacks that hopefully contain one or two things you would want to publish, probably for every 300 things there are. I think that reading Slush pushed me towards wanting to edit diversity even before I really knew what the discussion was. Because when you read 50 things in an hour, you really want to find one thing that is at least a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Something that has the novelty that will get people to read it so they can see its quality. It's much easier when you find something that, for example, has the romance that everything in Slush has, but it's not a purely straight plot. That's what I found myself gravitating to much more because I got really bored of romance plots. But I wasn't bored of queer romance plots because I was never given the opportunity to read any. Mm -hmm. Or I was really, really super bored of farm boys from within the most privileged like racial sphere of whatever the fantasy world was because I've read that a million times. Is it pretty clear to you sort of dynamics that are different between just a straight romance and dynamics in a queer romance. Stories where the society is putting pressure on queer romances, those feel really different. So a queer romance is super central to, for example, The Sorcerer of the Wild Leaves. Mm -hmm. And there's queer romances that are very central to a book I have coming out in January called The Drowning Eyes. And in one of them, the romance has to be hidden. And in the other, it doesn't, because there's queer romance. In The Drowning Eyes, there's no one around to stigmatize queer romances. It's just an unspoken fact of that setting. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it feels a little different to me still, for reasons I'll get into more, but a lot less different than in, say, The Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, and much, much more different from a story I edited in the sight of a Kresa, a story about a young noblewoman starting an affair with a mute slave girl. Mm -hmm. And that is clearly heading towards tragedy from the beginning. Those feel really different from stories where society isn't putting any pressure on heterosexual romances. But even with stories where it's just accepted as a part of the world, that also feels really different. Because it's interesting looking at a world where there isn't stigma. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps people imagine that. I think it makes it easier for people to imagine themselves away from the very deep stigmas that everyone is fed different degrees in the real world. Mm -hmm. I think fantasy is very useful for that. From a very personal perspective, even even before I was I was looking for it, a kind of little thrill when a character turned out to be queer because I didn't see that coming. That's cool. Mm -hmm. That's not the thing I read in the last book. And although for a lot of times I didn't realize why that was happening. I think part of that might have been because I myself am queer and took a very long time to realize it. I would kind of encourage people to see it as being able to read something different, which I would think they already want to do because they're looking for a world where things are magical and strange and you aren't going to see anything like you see in the real world. Mm -hmm. And to Explore these kinds of feelings in a in in another world that doesn't impact your own. There aren't people written having political opinions that you have to care about. It's not a lit fic where you might go to that city and be reminded of things. Is I think kind of a safer way to explore these things if you want to broaden your horizons. And even if that's not not the case, I would encourage people who are wondering, oh, why does this have to be here in my epic fantasy? To think that for someone this reading this book for the first time, they're going to say, oh, this 
book wanted me to feel at home. Mm-hmm. Someone will be experiencing something that they probably don't get that often. Yeah. I find it very useful because as a bisexual man who's in an exclusive committed marriage to a woman, you know, I'm not going to get to have a steamy gay romance with a man. So there's a kind of deep satisfaction out of being able to get that various reading experience for something that I'm not going to get myself. And it makes it easier to deal with the fact that in a given lifetime, you're not going to be able to experience all the different ways of being a human. Mm-hmm. And I think they're all interesting ways to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that even for understanding heterosexual romances, there's a lot of value in reading queer romances. Mm-hmm. Because when heterosexual romances are the safe choice for the author, the one that's going to be kind of unthinkingly accepted, mm-hmm. even heterosexual romances at like the inception stage are very scary and risky propositions, right? Mm-hmm. When the narrative just accepts that, oh, these two have fallen in love, you can do your thing now. Is that really useful to you? When there's challenges for one reason or another, or you're not sure whether your feelings or like your favorite character's feelings are going to be reciprocated, or whether it's going to be this kind of disastrous rejection. Isn't that a better way of thinking through the challenges of doing the very difficult human task of throwing your emotions out there and hoping they'll land? Mm-hmm. There are, of course, a lot of people who write straight romances that well. But mm-hmm. when you're not pushing yourself, you might just be like, oh, now there's the romance plot. I've made it steamy. Good to go. Right. Let's go down a slightly different path, which is reader expectations around the ways that queer romances have often been portrayed. And right. the one I wasn't even aware of until relatively recent was the notion of the tragic queer and that a queer character often turns out will end up coming to a bad end, perhaps not necessarily so much because of of the way that the sort of setting and world demand it, but just because the author's expectations or apparently sometimes even contractual in some books, sort of that was part of it. I have to imagine that as authors and as as an editor, you need to sort of be aware that readers are going to bring their expectations. And some of them are going to be saying, why must this care queer? And some of them are going to be saying, I identify with this queer character, and I have had plenty of times where I have identified a queer character who was discarded for no particular reason be- because tragedy is expected. How do you how do you kind of juggle that and think about that? I'm not sure, and honestly, I worry about it a lot. Twitter has been really useful for my formation as a human who is not a total piece of garbage. Yes. Just like listening to a hundred people who are nothing like me every day is an invaluable experience. Here, here. At the point where I was kind of made aware that the tragic queer is a done-to-death trope and is actually really painful for a lot of people to read, I had already bought two stories where that happened, and I was just about to put them out in the world, and I was thinking to myself, I am going to be destroyed. Because I am a... At that point, I hadn't really completely come out to myself as bisexual, so I was thinking, like, I am at least a straight-passing man editing a straight-passing man story about tragic lesbians, and it's, it's, we're gonna die. <laughs> um, it was, it was horrifying. Nothing happened, and I don't know how many people read the story. I think it was lovely. But, um, you know, I think they can be good stories, and I also recently learned about all the contractual history about how the kind of lesbian pulp explosion was facilitated by a bunch of publishers who were really happy to publish uh, lesbian fiction, 
but all the books would be rounded up by the government and burned if the lesbians didn't die or become straight by the end. Mm-hmm. And as such, it's actually a quite interesting literary history because this tragic queer character, at least in American literature, allowed there to be lesbian characters at all. Mm-hmm. You know, we've evolved past that tool, but its usefulness then has evolved into a kind of you know, at, at, at worst, like, if you want to give it the least credit, a kind of fetishistic crutch. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't, obviously don't think it's always that, but you've got to be careful because if a story is just a queer tragedy for the sake of selling some books because that's titillating, well, then you're making garbage. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's where, where I draw the line, like the titillation factor. Mm-hmm. Because if I think, I think generally, if you're crossing any kind of boundary for the sake of titillation, and not to actually see what happens when you do and try to make something valuable there. And, you know, you're being really careful and you're thinking about what you're doing and you're trying to be aware of all the potential consequences. If instead you're just doing it to get the cheap reaction, then you're going to be hurting people for no reason. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's very defensible. Mm-hmm. My main thought after I, after I realized this trend in the stories that I've been proud of buying because they had queer characters in them, go me. Uh, was that I really wanted to edit some stories about queer people who got to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're writing both and reading both or editing both or whatever, then you're doing good because I think it's still possible for a queer tragedy to happen usefully. Queer people still get to be sad. Mm-hmm. And not having that as part of the literary dialogue is robbing people of what could be, you know potentially emotionally cathartic. Because I've definitely read about straight people having their lives destroyed because of their relationships as a way of emotional catharsis by saying, you know, I identify with these characters, but at least if that's not happened to me. Mm -hmm. So I want to circle back to queer people get to be happy, but I've seen some people talking about it, and I think I find this a little bit persuasive, that there are just so few stories out there that feature queer romances or queer protagonists at all that it sort of forces those stories to stand in for a whole lot of things and a whole lot of experiences. And they're going to be overloaded because there's not a lot out there. Scarcity of queer protagonists and queer romance is some of the reason there's kind of an extra pressure. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a real bootstrapping problem for the publishing industry, actually, because even when editors are trying to do their best for what they think are important issues by, like, publishing stories, for example, stories by white authors that have a lot of what they see as quite well-written characters of color who are in sympathetic positions, or stories by, you know, men about queer women. When there's only one of those coming out in a season, mm-hmm. or, you know, when there's, say, four, but one is winning, and there's a kind of siphoning of resources towards that one, and basically when it's all still enough of a rarity, that people think, oh, I'm only going to read one book about lesbians this year. Mm -hmm. That's a huge problem because it puts so much pressure on whichever book people are going to put their resources to, to represent the entire breadth of the lesbian experience, which is impossible. Mm -hmm. And amplifies any faults it might have. Because if it's got to be all things to all people, the things that people don't see will seem like that book's fault. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah. the only way to solve that is by having more stories. I've noticed this on TV, too. I co-run a Brooklyn Nine-Nine podcast. I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine. 
you're a good human. That show has gotten to do so many things because yes. it cast two really interesting black male authority figures and two really interesting female Latina detectives mm-hmm. and like two Jewish characters and all kinds of things. And Rosa and Amy, Rosa Diaz and Amy Santiago get to be entirely different people and neither of them have to be the Latina woman. Right. Because if they had to be that character, it would be a shit show. And that's happened so many times. Mm-hmm. Imagine Rosa Diaz, who's this gruff, violent, angry person. If she were the only Latina on that show, mm-hmm. it'd be racist as shit. Mm-hmm. But we've also got Amy Santiago, who's like a teacher's pet. The, the polar opposite. And it's just so much easier for them to explore who they are as people, because not all the pressure is going on the one example. Yes. That actually makes me think about Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps here, because that was not just a story with a queer romance, it was also men traveling together on a far distant secondary world that, as far as I can tell, had nothing to do with and no connection to our Earth. Speaking often in African-American vernacular English, being men together, there was also a queer romance in them. It struck me that there were both many marginalized identities presented, and also there were characteristics of those marginalized identities that we see as being very, very rooted in... A specific time and place. African-American vernacular English is U.S. English of this particular time, of a particular community of this time. And that got to appear in a secondary world all by itself. And I'm thinking back to some of your comments early on about normalizing or making it easier to imagine a fuller spectrum of human identity within stories. This gave me that sense, and I really appreciated it. Yeah, it's really valuable. I think I've never been 100% clear whether that world is an evolution of Earth. It might be. That's true. There's certainly people who speak French. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that book does so many different and interesting things and has such an air of confidence about its very ambitious endeavor that you kind of have to accept at every stage that, oh, this is what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting to read in this book that the author described in an interview as a frat boy going on a road trip with a bunch of other frat boys and sneakily dating the RA on the DL. That that sounds fair. Yeah, it's got an incredibly decadent prose style. Mm-hmm. And is a book that has a quite nuanced depiction of fissures in black thought about whether it's acceptable for black people to use the N-word. Mm-hmm. In the same story as, like, the gay frat romance, and in the same story as the dude with the magic spear and the bag of holding who goes to fight a saber-toothed tiger. Mm-hmm. I love that a story can have all those things together. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really grateful to Kai Shante Wilson for letting me edit it, because I don't know where else I get to do that. It's fun. It's exhilarating. Are there thoughts you have about secondary worlds and the ways queer or other marginal identities get portrayed in secondary worlds, or maybe even specific books or stories that you read that particularly either objected to, and there I won't ask you for titles, or things that you really like to see? You know, it's complicated. So if we talk about The Wheel of Time, which we've already talked about a bit, Mm -hmm. The Wheel of Time has, you know, like I said, I love it, but I don't know if I'd love it now, because it's got two proto-transgender characters, or one proto-transgender character, and that proto-transgender character was created by Satan. (laughs) (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Yep. That's an optics problem. And deeper, it's a problem about writing a world where gender is biologically determinate and written on the soul. Someone I am consistently super impressed with in how she never takes anything for granted about the sexual politics of her worlds is N.K. Jemison. Yes. I was wondering if that was where you were going. Her Inheritance trilogy was really eye-opening for me. I think it's the first time I saw a super positive depiction of a polyamorous relationship, mm -hmm. which is very interesting to me because I, I couldn't do polyamory. I know it wouldn't work for me. But I find it really interesting, and it's something that has worked, like actually worked, for a lot of societies across human culture, and has been pushed mm -hmm. all the way out to, like, super taboo in mm -hmm. the last hundred years, max, right? Is when more and more cultures were pressured to hide polyamory and polygamy. Mm -hmm. And it's something that happens in Kai's world, too, although you don't see as much of it in the Source of the Wild Deeps. He has a story on Tor.com called Superbase which is about a man dealing with the fact that he's kind of a guest in his lover society, and that society's stable relationship bond, its nuclear family, is three spouses of two genders total. Okay. Like, that's what you do. You find three people to get together to be mamas and papas. Mm -hmm. You never doubt that Jemison knows exactly what she's doing when right. she lays out all the different kinds of sexual relationships in her world. And she doesn't make it feel super intrusive because it's it's critical, it's necessary mm -hmm. to the way the story works. You can't say in the Inheritance trilogy where the mythology is that there's three gods, a man, a woman, and a genderqueer space void. Right. And they're lovers. And that's how the universe exists. That's why there's gay relationships. You've got, at the foundation of the universe... Yes. Um, a man, a woman, and a genderqueer space voice. Mm -hmm. And she does a ton of stuff like that. Like, she's she's always super mind-blowing. Her second book in that series, The Broken Kingdoms, in my opinion, is by far the best of the trilogy and is one of my favorite fantasy books, period. Because before I read it, I had never even imagined that you could have a blind, magically-sighted protagonist. This is the most beautiful way to make every narrative description be totally different from how it would be with a sighted protagonist or a blind protagonist. I don't think I picked up on that aspect of it. She only sees magic, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. And she lives in a super magical world. Uh-huh, so she can kind of make her way around. Jemison is so good at not showing what you expect, I feel like, yeah. and just, just casting a new light on things. And generally presenting it as, you have to start accepting this fast, because the right. story will leave you behind if you don't. Right. I would love to stay on The Wonders of N.K. Jemison for probably an entire podcast. But I want to circle back on the notion of queer people being happy. I'm curious whether you read the story Marigolds from Long Hidden. Is that the one in the French brothel? Yes. Yeah, I love that story. I love Long Hidden, too. It's the lesbian lovers who start out in a brothel in Paris, and they eventually get to go off and be happy. And I read that, and I was kind of surprised. Like, I wasn't necessarily, I don't think, expecting tragedy because tragic queer but just it's there's there there's is, a lot of danger there's a lot of pain and then at the end they're sort of sitting happily just like okay we're, we're in a good place and that's that's not usually where i expect stories to end there's so many things that could have gone wrong for the women in that story they're in a brothel in france so like 
all kinds of horrible things can happen in a brothel, especially in fiction. Mm-hmm. I think there's issues of like pregnancy in that come up a little bit in that story. I don't remember exactly, but that's hugely fraught. It's a very easy way for a queer woman to die in a story to have a baby she doesn't want. One of the characters isn't sure the other one is interested in her, so it could just be a story of rejection. And on top of all that, this brothel is is located in Paris ten days before the Bastille falls. Right, exactly. And is actively involved in that in that process. They wouldn't have even needed a queer excuse for those characters to die. No, and that's why I was expecting it. Like, I wasn't at least consciously aware of the tragic queer narrative at all when I was reading. And I was posting reactions to the stories in Long Hidden as I was reading them. And somebody came on and pointed out they're sex workers. And they're sex workers who get to sort of take agency themselves, which is not necessarily related to their queer sexuality, but is another thing that doesn't show up a whole lot. Yeah in the genre, but you also just don't get queer people who get to go off and be happy together. Um, and I had someone who stopped by the blog and said, you know, by the way, this is this is something that I, where I was like, I find this ending, you know, not to have a whole lot of punch. They said, this is something that for me is, is a really important thing that I don't get to, you know, I don't get to see very often. Yeah, you don't get to see that every day. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'm also publishing this story. It's called Seven Commentaries on an Imperfect Land by uh, Ruthana Emerus. Yes. I really, yeah, I really like that one. And Ruthana Emerus is a truly lovely author. People should be, should be paying attention. But, like, the story has a very prominent queer couple mm-hmm. who break up not because of, you know, society pressuring them in any way. They're never under any pressure to be straight. Mm-hmm. And then they get back together. And they get to enjoy a communal dinner together. Yes. Like you would over the holidays. Like mm-hmm. that's the emotional end piece of the story. And something that simple has been made revolutionary mm-hmm. by the stillness of the narrative and the paucity of queer stories. Yeah. There's this whole host of stories that we never see because mm-hmm. there was always a sort of demand. Well, there must be some plot reason or they'll have to be. And tragically, and yeah, there's yeah. there's a whole host of stories that you can tell by letting queer people be happy. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. I think I'm going to go with The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. Uh-huh. Of all the books I read for English classes in college, it was the one I liked. Like, the one I was like... If I'd read this outside of college class, I'd be I would be ecstatic to have found it. I never would have found it outside of college class. Okay. I love that book. It's a wonderful experience and it's it's really interesting as a fantasy fan because it has world building, very important world building. And Haruki Murakami does weird world building because the central world building element in The Wonder Bird Chronicle sort of spoilers, I guess is that because of the detonation of the atomic bomb, causality doesn't really work right anymore. Hmm. And sometimes you put um, microwavable instant ramen in the microwave, and it should come out as macaroni and cheese. Like, of all the things that might happen, surely one time when you put ramen in the microwave, it should come out as macaroni and cheese, right? That's the question the story asks, and you're supposed to say, <laughs> yeah, that seems true in this world. Okay. It's really, it's a cool trick. And, like, because it's not fantasy written by a fantasy author, it doesn't get tangled up in its rules. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand them like a fantasy reader would in order to really get it, I think. Okay. 
it was definitely the first book I read where I was like, this is amazing, and I'm really glad I'm an English major because I got to read this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one being The Brief Rondus Life of Oscar Wow. That's another one that I felt like I should probably put on my list. It's so cool. It uses footnotes, so you're ready now. You've read The Source of the Wild Beasts. Yeah. No, I love footnotes. More books about... Uh, excellent. Okay, I'm going to go see if my library's got it. So, it probably does. It's a pretty popular book. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.